0: Dylan Brody started his stand-up career in New York City while still a teenager in the early 1980s, performing on multiple TV showcases, writing Jay Leno's monologue jokes when Leno was still just guest hosting The Tonight Show starring Johnny Carson, and he has performed around the world. In more recent years, you may have seen him on the green room with Paul Provenza, opening for fellow humorist David Sedaris on his stage tour, or on NPR affiliates in California. Brody has released several comedy albums just in the past decade published three young adult books, and is touring his latest work, a one-man show about his life and career, Dylan Brody's Driving Hollywood. So let's get to it! Well, it's good that we have things in common. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So, Dylan Brody, uh, thanks for joining me on Last Things First. Thank you for having me
1: on Last, last Things First.
0: Yeah, so Last Things First. Uh, in my review of your one-man show, Dylan Brody's Driving Hollywood. I com- A lovely review, by the way. I thank oh. you for it from the bottom of my bottom. I compare you to uh, Dana Gould's big brother. Oh. Do you? Is that is that the first or one of many times you've been compared?
1: No one has ever compared me to Dana Gould. I love Dana Gould. I believe Dana Gould is older than I am.
0: You're a year older. I am? Yeah. I oh. had to look it up to make sure yeah. I, was, I was structurally correct. Nice. Uh,
1: I thought he was older than I am because close. I started so young mm-hmm. that w- I sort of got in the habit in my early days of, when I first encountered Dana, so in the 80s, uh, I was in the habit of assuming I was younger than everyone else. Um, but I love him. I love his work. I am thrilled to be considered in any way in his universe. So thank you for that comparison and it might become a blurb <laughs> for use when talking to people who would know who Dana Gould is because right. the truth is Dana Gould like me is well known in certain circles and then unknown outside that. Right. So there you know he has fans he has a fan base and certainly in hollywood everyone knows who he is cuz he wrote the simpsons and he he has a history in the behind the scenes right. industry but out in the world i don't know that he's a household name and uh and i imagine that bothers him as much as it bothers me i go to sleep every night cursing the fact that dana gould is not a household name
0: i uh, he made a um a keynote Address at the Montreal Festival, just for laughs, a couple of years ago, where he talked about having to overcome those feelings of yeah. bitterness and resentment toward other comedians.
1: Yeah, he's a he's a wonderful comic. He's a a smart and kind man, and uh, and he made a pass at the woman who would later become my wife, like a year before I met her.
0: Ah, uh, just like a younger brother would. Yeah, exactly right. <laughs> exactly right. Well, that leads us back to you. Oh, so, good. So you – I know in, in, your, in your one-man show, you talk about um, second, grade, second grade and sixth grade. I do. And then suddenly at 17, you're a comedian in New York City. It was – yes. I, well, suddenly in terms of five years or –
1: Yeah, yeah, and, and, and the context of a, a one-hour show, a 70-minute right. show. It wasn't nearly as sudden to me as it might appear in the show.
0: But how did you get, at what point did you go from the precociousness to thinking, oh, I can use these gifts on stage as a performer? Ah, I always wanted to be a comic. I knew
1: from very early that I I loved getting laughs. Uh, I loved comics. I would tune in to any television show that I thought might have stand-up comics on it. I watched sitcoms and reverse engineered how joke writing worked. I was I was just fascinated by the the process of comedy mm-hmm. and the craft and the and the response. Um laughter always felt to me like love. Uh so so I always knew I wanted to do stand up. The, the first act I went out with, I did not write. A uh, student of my father's, my father was a teacher at Skidmore College. He taught theater and first he taught English and literature and then he became head of the theater department. And one of his students wanted to write comedy at the same time that I wanted to start doing comedy. So I sat down with this grown up in his, I don't know, 20s. Um, How old were you? I was 17. Okay. It was the, the year between high school and college the summer between high school and college. And he wrote me my first six minute open mic set. Oh, wow. And it was not right for me. I don't know that it was bad, but it wasn't, it was just words that I could say. It wasn't my thinking. It wasn't
0: he wasn't writing for you. He was just writing jokes that Well, you there could was
1: use. no me that you could write for yet. I didn't know who I was yet. I didn't know what I was as a comic. He asked me questions about what I was doing and mm-hmm. what I was up to, and I answered them, and then he wrote jokes about them. Okay. I was. Th- there was one joke that I so thoroughly didn't understand that I was mispronouncing a word in it, a name in it. Uh, I was... That summer, in addition to starting to do stand-up, the summer between high school and college, I was also working at the New York Renaissance Festival. Okay. Where John Lovitz taught me to improvise in Elizabethan. Very nice. And uh, in Sooth. Um, Acting. He, <laughs> was he doing that already? No. Then? No, okay. he wasn't. He was. <laughs> this was in 81. Past he, But he... He taught me to improvise Elizabethan, mm-hmm. and I was one of, I'm one of the few people who improvises Elizabethan in iambic pentameter, which he also could do. But you know there there's a, a group now can. called Improvise Shakespeare. I do know that, but, uh, <laughs> but I'm better. In
0: any case, <laughs> why? Why would I? Why? No, you should just ask to sit in with them as a oh, guest. that would be fun, actually. Yeah. As yeah. a jam. An Elizabethan <laughs> jam. <laughs> Did they have jam back then? I don't know. This Don't look it up. Jelly. I
1: had jelly. The, the, uh, the joke was, I was working at the Renaissance Festival, and the joke was, uh, I'm working at the Renaissance Festival this summer, uh, where, where everybody dresses up like characters from a Bruegel painting. <laughs> this was a joke he had written for me, and I didn't know who Bruegel was. Bruegel. So I pronounced it Bruegel, and even if I would pronounced it correctly... The audience doesn't know who Bruegel is. <laughs> I mean, it was just, there was so much that was wrong with this for open mic nights. I did it maybe three or four times and then went, yeah, this isn't working. It's and quite
0: the imbroglio.
1: Started to, <laughs> oh, uh, a, a briggle, haha. Um, I don't know where Burger's that's going. bagels? Ooh, now I'm hungry. <laughs> I, uh, I ditched it and started mm-hmm. working up my own material. About a year later, I got in at the improv. and, and Yeah,
0: how, how were you able to manage that so fast? Was it just the boom of the '80s, or? Well, I wasn't. Or I, you were just that I didn't uh, suck. prodigy. I didn't suck. I was
1: really working hard to find my voice and to mm-hmm. figure out what I was doing. To, at the time, it didn't seem like it was fast. It seemed like it had taken me forever. Right. <laughs> uh, I, I one of the moments in my life that has burned into my memory is it was the second time I showcased for the improv that I got in. Okay. And the first time I didn't, I went with a friend from Sarah, Alex Bernstein, who I Mm -hmm. mentioned earlier in another broadcast with you. Uh, Alex Bernstein and I went down from Sarah Lawrence together and showcased, and we did not get in. And I think he never showcased there again. Several months later, I went back and showcased again. And this moment when I came off stage and Silver Friedman, the... I was just going to ask who it
0: was who passed you.
1: Was sitting at the back of the room, mm-hmm. nodding and smiling at me. And I thought, oh, now I'm a star. <laughs> now now I now I am allowed through the gates and I am a famous stand-up comic, like the guy in Fame who goes down and showcases it, Catch a Rising Star, and <laughs> then is a comic. Uh, she said, uh, come back in two weeks. I want to see a different six-minute set. Oh, and I said, "Okay, can I close with the same piece?" Because I'm always closing with that. She mm-hmm. said, "Sure." So, th- two weeks later, I came back and did a different set, mm-hmm. and she said, "You're a developing regular, uh, put in for spots every week." And every week, I got two spots uh, from then on until. So
0: you were commuting. Yeah, I
1: was. I was at Sarah Lawrence College, and I would take the train down. It, the train to and from New York from Sarah Lawrence cost exactly as much as I was getting paid at the improv so it was a it was a break even endeavor
0: which actually in retrospect is a good deal for a startup starting comedian I had no idea how great
1: it was (laughs) (laughs) I was such an idiot my my early career partly because I was stoned and wasn't learning from my errors and wasn't seeing what was going on around me and was Mm -hmm. so deeply self-involved but my career early on was a a long series of doors opening and me slamming them shut and then being mad at someone else about it. Oh.
0: Self-sabotage?
1: Oh, you have no idea.
0: Oh, I have some idea. Okay. <laughs> I can hashtag identify.
1: My, my, <laughs> my last uh, round of therapy was all about how to stop self-sabotaging. Oh. And uh, it looks like it's taking... <laughs> We'll see.
0: It's a day at a time. It's it's progress. Yeah. Not perfection.
1: Yeah. Thank you. Sure. Thank you. I've been saying that uh, Betsy DeVos had better hope that her job performance is rated on progress, not <laughs> on performance. <laughs> right.
0: She's shown incredible progress over the last four years. These are th- things It's not where she is now. It's where she started from. Jo-
1: jokes that the object would not understand. That's <laughs> A long list of jokes
0: the call them broigels if you will they're uh, or call them brugles
1: <laughs> call them brugles <laughs> that by the way is the, the name of my uh, autobiography <laughs> call them brugles
0: <laughs> so when you were 18 were you were you already dead set on trying to be the next uh lunny bruce
1: yes because i know exactly i know you've
0: said that on one of your records I wanted, a podcast that you wanted to be. I
1: wanted to be Lenny Bruce. I, I wanted to be the groundbreaking, uh, effortless, drugged, left-leaning, outside-of-the-mainstream-changing-the-world comic that I imagined Lenny Bruce to have been. And was not sophisticated enough to realize that Lenny Bruce was not happy with who he was. And did not know that he was Lenny Bruce. Mm. It was only much later, when I didn't die young, that well, there's still time for that. But I didn't <laughs> die really young. Right. That I began to realize there might be more to my, more to me than uh, than potential unrealized.
0: So. How long did you? How long did you hold that kind of thought slash fantasy?
1: Until in your until I quit smoking pot, I uh, ninety eight.
0: Oh wow! Okay, so 90, a long time.
1: 97, Ninety seven, ninety eight. Uh, uh, I might have started to break out of it before I quit smoking pot. It might have mm-hmm. been part of the impetus to me reinventing myself in the way that I did. I will say this. I have often said, I don't have a moralistic objection. In the past, at least, I've not had a moralistic objection to drug use. I might be starting to change on that just a little bit for reasons that are not, oh, it's bad to do drugs. We can, we can talk about that if you want. But I realized only after I quit smoking that The constant marijuana use, and I did, I I was stoned from 1978 to 1998. Like, morning to night, if I was awake, I was high. That's a lot of brain cells. Yeah. Um, And I don't know that it actually kills brain cells, and I think that I've largely recovered my intellectual capacity since then. Mm -hmm. But what I didn't realize was how much I was preventing myself from developing as a human. If you're constantly on painkillers, you keep touching the stove. And I was alienating people, and I was self-involved in the way that an adolescent is the whole time because I just wasn't developing. And I was forgetting the things that could have taught me lessons, and I was repressing the need to learn and change. So it was... More healthy than I realized that I quit smoking, and it set back my career. It set back my life development in many ways, and it's very exciting now to be finding out who I am as a grown-up th- at this stage of my life.
0: Yeah, I, uh, I, I can, I can identify with all that if, except for me. It was alcohol, not pot, but and, and, not, and not twenty years, but
1: but it 10. does. Well done. Yeah. You got there faster than me, because clearly you're a better human.
0: <laughs> <laughs> or just that selfish to want to survive. Because what's important is
1: that we compare one another <laughs> to our own accomplishments. Well, let's go
0: Let's go back then. Uh, instead, I, of, instead of 1998, back to the early 80s, when you, were, early 80s yes. when you were a teenager in New York, just starting out in comedy. Yes. How were you perceived by all those older comedians that you thought you actually were the youngest or you thought... You were the youngest. Well, I was how certainly
1: I was certainly the youngest at the improv when I got in. I wasn't allowed to drink yet. Um, I don't know entirely how I was perceived. Some were very kind to me. Larry David was very kind to me at the improv. I recently met him a few years ago. Now I I met him, and I told him that, and he said, "Was I?" I don't remember being kind to anyone. Ron Darian, who later went on to I think he was the head writer or the story editor on Mad About You. Okay, he. Uh, he was a, a comic at the Improv at the time who was very warm to me and and supportive. Fred Stoller was barely older than I was. And I remember him sitting alone at the bar, staring at a notebook and sipping whatever the hell he was sipping at the time <laughs> while I sat at the bar and drank coffee. I don't I don't know how I was perceived by the others because again I was so young and so self-involved that I was largely just comparing myself to them and unable to reach out and be open. I went – when I worked there as a developing regular, I would get either the first or second spot of the night or one of the last two spots of the night. So I was working to a a lighthouse – and regardless, I would get there half an hour before showtime, and then I would watch every act that went up. So I wasn't having a lot of conversations.
0: You were just soaking everything I up. I
1: was soaking everything up. For years, I thought it was Ron Darian who had done this. I recently found out it was Paul Provenza. Uh, Prevenza used to sit at the back at the improv and heckle in the voice of Chico Marx if someone was going down in flames. <laughs> And I remember the night that he heckled me, and I felt like I was loved and accepted by my colleagues. I had seen him do it to other people, Mm -hmm. but but that one of the big kids was sitting in the room while I was performing and heckling me. Now I realize it was a sort of a dick move and he was kind of bullying me, but at the time it just felt like love. It was attention. Yeah. Even
0: if it was bad attention, it was
1: attention. You know, there were four people in the audience Mm -hmm. and I knew I was going down in flames and suddenly I hear the voice from the back of the room going, hey, that's a pretty funny boss. Now tell us a joke.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And years later you could be on the green room with him. Exactly right. Um, At what age were you when you uh, first uh, discovered Bill Hicks then?
1: I worked with Bill Hicks before I discovered him. I did a gig with him upstate New York somewhere. Mm-hmm. I was... I had just moved out to Los Angeles in so 1986 or 87, Okay, I think. so you're
0: still pretty young when you moved to LA.
1: Oh, yeah, I moved to LA in 80, 86, January right. of 86. And... There were a couple of bookers who you still booked me on the East Coast, and I would fly back to
0: do those gigs, largely as a feature act. Would you time those around like family holidays or no? I didn't have the brains to
1: do anything like that. I oh, okay. took them when they came and usually lost money on them and couldn't figure out why. And <sighs> Bill did not smoke pot. I don't know if he ever smoked pot, but he would not smoke pot with me. He wanted to do mushrooms. And I, was uh-huh. like, I, got, I got a show. I can't be on mushrooms to do a show. I was like, All right. I remember a late night conversation with him, in which I told him that around Oscar time in Los Angeles, I like to go from bar to bar, claiming to have just won an award for best animated documentary, and he thought that was very funny, and he said, "Oh, I, when I die, I want to have a." animated documentary made about me and then a few years ago I saw a a film called I think it's called The American right
0: The Bill Hicks story
1: it's the Bill Hicks story and they took photographs of him and did that thing where they separate out the background image from the front and they and they essentially made an animated documentary and I could barely watch the movie because all I was thinking was he got his animated documentary Mm. that's so cool Later, and when I saw him, I liked his work at the time, but I was, again, so deeply self-involved that all I was really thinking was, how do I do that? How do I, how do I write as sharply and perform as casually as he does? It was really the performance from him that fascinated me. Now, later... I realized what he was about, and just how smart he was, and just how powerful his work was. And when I taught at Northfield Mount Hermon, the prep school from which I neglected to graduate until 2001, I uh, I made the the kids I was teaching. I went back as their artist in residence, and mm-hmm. the kids who were. Studying stand-up with me, I made them listen to Bill Hicks because he was a, a prime example of someone who could really explore his own point of view and commit to his own ideas of the world and how it functions and how it could function and expressed those ideals through his work. And ultimately, I divide the world of stand-up and television and film, everything we think of as the entertainment industry, into craftspeople and artists. And he falls firmly in the artist's column. And I am a deep admirer of what he did.
0: Were you in the 80s or were you just because you were comparing... In
1: the 80s, he was just... In Less the,
0: inspired by him and more kind of irritated that he was... Yeah, I was just envious. Doing what
1: you... Just yeah. deeply envious because he was doing what I wanted to do and he was doing it better.
0: <laughs> and of course, when you moved to L.A., you moved to L.A. around the same time that the rest of Hicks's outlaws were out there.
1: Yes, but... breaking havoc at the comedy The story. rest of, of Hicks's outlaws were right-leaning and I was left-leaning and mm-hmm. Bill was left-leaning. Um... When you look at what Carl Lebove was doing and what uh, Sam Kinison was doing, they were right wing rebels. They they were creating the illusion that they were somehow cutting edge and innovative because they cursed, but the ideas they were presenting in their acts were incredibly regressive. Right. Uh, the only, the the one that I I loved and sorely missed was Ron Shock, who was a storyteller and. A deep-hearted liberal, uh, just a a wonderful, sweet man who cared about the rest of humanity and who now would be called a snowflake because, you know, he believes that human decency matters. The idea that that could be a ridiculable, ridiculable, the idea (laughs) that human decency could be considered ridiculous by... Mocked, yeah. an entire political party now is horrific to me. But I digress for a living.
0: Yeah. When you went to LA, you were still in your early 20s. Yes. And uh, did you have a plan when you moved to New York to LA? <laughs> I know you said you were getting stoned every day. <laughs> did I have a plan?
1: Oh, yes, I had a plan. Yeah. There was a uh, When I moved to LA, I was coming off the road. I had a I was part of a children's theater tour, Okay. a show called King Arthur and His Magic Sword. How is that not porn for kids? (laughs) Medieval porn for children. Um, And while I was on the road, someone in L.A., and I will not give his name, had read one of my my first screenplay Mm -hmm. and liked it a lot and was talking about buying it. So... At the end of that tour, I had $500 saved, and instead of a ticket home, I had them give me a ticket to LA. So yes, my plan was I was going to go to Los Angeles, sell my screenplay, and be rich and famous. That was my plan. And that was like the extent of the plan. I believed in this world where if you were talented and you had written something, uh, then Everything came easy and money flowed into your hands and everybody knew your name and wanted to be near you and
0: gave you cocaine. Where, pray tell, is this meritocracy? There's a,
1: a story of mine. I don't know if it's on any of my CDs. I know I hate to advertise another podcast on your podcast, mm. but I did a story worthy podcast on which I know I told the story. Uh It's a myth. There's Mm -hmm. this mythology that says that there are people in Los Angeles waiting around to discover other people, and that doesn't happen. But we all grow up on this mythology, particularly East Coast artists, Uh, the intellectual academic crowd genuinely believes that if you're talented and you work hard, things will be handed to you. And it does not exist, it is a lie, it is a a mythology that has been around for so long that we don't even notice we believe it. And if you're stoned, you continue to believe it and resent the world for not providing it. If you're sober, you slowly figure out that that's not reality and can determine for yourself how you are going to function in the reality that is as opposed to the one you grew up imagining.
0: So in the reality, did you sell the screenplay? No. Uh
1: I got to LA, I slept on a friend's floor. Mm -hmm. I went to my meeting with the he said I love the screenplay. It was on the Paramount lot this meeting. Uh, I love the screenplay. I think there's some, we need more visual stuff in the second act. So I went and I used some of my $500 to buy a portable typewriter and I did the rewrite and I went back. And literally on the day that I brought the screenplay back to him, I found a custodian scraping his name off the door. He had been, excuse me, he had been, I'm, I'm doing uh, Bradley Whitford's acting technique. <laughs> <laughs> um,. <laughs> He he had been buying screenplays from young writers Mm -hmm. at Guild Minimum and then optioning them for significantly more back to his own production company Mm. and then never making any movies and was fired for embezzlement from Paramount. Uh, Just in time. Just in time for me to not get Guild Minimum Mm. and a start to my career. And uh, the, the good news is, though, he is now a very successful and wealthy man in L.A. Wait, how is that the good news?
0: <laughs> but having the blessing of Silver Friedman uh, didn't help you as much with Bud?
1: No, I thought, I, I thought there would be reciprocity. I, I didn't understand how it worked. I thought, oh, I'm a regular at the improv. I can get in at the right. improv. But uh, in fact, no, uh, she had gotten the New York Club in the divorce and he didn't care. So I got to the, the improv. Have you heard this piece? Have you heard? Uh, a little bit of okay. it, yeah.
0: Well, I'm, I, I, I'm, I'm interested in where it goes, but.
1: I, I, uh, I went into the improv in, in LA and I said, hey, I'm a regular. Mm-hmm. And they said, hey, we've never heard of you. Come in on Sunday, I think, for open mic night, put your mm-hmm. name in a hat. And I said, I'm not doing open mic night. Come on, give me a showcase. So they put me up for a showcase on a Tuesday night. And I didn't realize at the time that that took a level of confidence in my work and a level of chutzpah that meant I was already there, right? I didn't get it that not everybody can do that. Right. I got a Tuesday night showcase and I went to the MC and I said, okay, so I want you to say when I go on stage, you got to say, he just got in from New York where he's been working in the film and television industry, which was true. I had been a a production assistant on – Crocodile Dundee Ooh. and the Cagney and Lacey New York shoot and Key Exchange, um, <laughs> offbeat. I've been on, I've been at pa on offbeat mm-hmm.
0: with oh, Jesus. <laughs> so the Tuesday night comes. So I go you and tell sorry, MC. I, you
1: shouldn't you shouldn't interview me this early when I haven't <laughs> had nearly enough coffee or any lunch. So I go and I tell the MC you say all of this and right. you. We're, we're, make them excited Mm -hmm. and I'm in the back of the room and I'm waiting and the guy goes up and he says ladies and gentlemen our next performer just flew in from New York where he's shooting a major motion picture and I thought okay that's not what I said (laughs) but I gave him the the truth I have plausible deniability I did nothing wrong because I genuinely believed at the time that if you got caught lying on your intro at a nightclub you could be in trouble (laughs) <laughs> I, I, it, when uh, does that ever happen a special guest and in the mm-hmm. 80s like special guests people got excited at, at comedy club. oh yeah. a special guest who's it gonna be and I, I started to shift my weight forward and mm-hmm. said, ladies and gentlemen please welcome Robin Williams and Robin blasted past me and went on stage and did 45 minutes and was brilliant had you met Robin before uh, I had once uh, embarrassed myself in front of him okay. but that was as close as I'd come he came off stage mm-hmm. And uh, the MC... How much time did he do? Okay, like 45 minutes, an hour. <laughs> the audience was done. A nice bump. The audience was done. A classic he, uh, bump.
0: Close he, the show. He wore the them out. Show's over.
1: Yeah, exactly. They're signaling for their checks. Yeah. And the MC goes up and says, okay, so this next guy is from New York. Let's see what you got. Dylan, come on up here.
0: That was my intro. <laughs> <laughs> Dylan, come on up here. Yeah. So uh, Is that your last name? Come on up here. Yeah.
1: So I I went on stage <laughs> and uh, and I said jokes like i didn't even tell j- i said jokes <laughs> into a room full of people who were paying their checks mm-hmm. and leaving and i did not get in at the improv so i went up the street to the comedy store and got a job answering phones that did not pay enough to cover an apartment so i lived on the roof of the comedy store for six months or something
0: yeah i love that
1: and i stole stage time i wasn't i wasn't given you know i wasn't a regular there mm-hmm. i answered the phones so i would stay until the end of the show in each of the different rooms and if there was anyone still sitting in the audience i would just walk on stage and do a set right
0: because that's kind of how, how that store still operates it's just the show goes until it's done until it's done yeah and <laughs> And by that time...
1: So the, who the knows owner, when it's over? The no owner knows. had left, so she didn't know that I was still stage She hated me. Connection. She was afraid of me. Um, and then... And
0: everybody else was up in the house
1: doing cocaine, right? Yeah, exactly. If it was raining, I would try to hide inside mm-hmm. until they locked up and then sleep indoors. But the rest of the time, I was sleeping on the roof. And one night... Uh, well, it's Southern California, so the weather's yeah, not... Yeah, most of the time it was okay. Yeah. Uh, one night, a woman who... Uh, who had seen me told me I was funny mm-hmm. she was in her 40s so I thought she was old and she invited me to her house cougar. in Hollywood Hills mm-hmm. where I had sex with her and her boyfriend ah, she was a cougar they offered me cocaine and told me I was funny mm-hmm. and it wasn't until many years later that I realized I had been homeless and a prostitute
0: hmm. it's a it's a Cinderella story it is you're
1: a pretty woman yes that's correct I am pretty woman I I am Julia Roberts only without the the work that makes me look eternally young, <laughs> and I don't have as appealing a, a laugh. Who
0: else was Who else was working
1: there was Was Marin
0: working Marin at the came door? In-
1: Marin came in right after I left. Okay. In fact, he told me, I don't remember this. Apparently, I confronted Mitzi at some point. Mm -hmm. I don't remember this. Apparently, I went into her office and said, look, I've been working here for four months, whatever it was, (laughs) a year. I don't know. I I need stage time. You got to make me a regular. And she Uh said, you're fired. Um, So, (laughs) uh, (laughs) Whoops. But uh, shortly after I left the comedy store... Marin came in, mm-hmm. he, we may have overlapped a little bit, and at some point Sam Kinison said, Don't pull a Marin. Don't 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 pull a Brody. <laughs> don't
0: pull a Brody. Don't go up there and confront
1: me. So apparently my name became a a noun for confronting the owner about uh, a need for stakeholders. Well you housing. can
0: provide valuable life lessons to That's other comedians.
1: Right. That's right. Uh I am a cautionary tale at best. <laughs>
0: Well, how did you get from there to writing monologue jokes for Jay Leno? Because oh, that was not
1: a, this is a good story. That's actually. not too far. Um, really. uh, Jimmy Brogan mm-hmm. is. I have a story that I don't think has been recorded yet. Called uh, we're
0: recording it right now.
1: Oh, good. I'm not doing the whole story. <laughs> it's, it's called the story of Jimmy Brogan is the nicest man on, in oh. the world, and, I like this. Uh, and why I stopped hating name redacted for legal reasons. Mm. Um, Jimmy Brogan is a comic who has no act. He goes on stage. He says, how are you doing? What do you do for a living? Where are you from?
0: I saw him at the Comedy Magic Club earlier this year. That's still what he does. And he's really good at it.
1: Mm-hmm. He's very low key. He's mm-hmm. he's just charming and witty and funny. He once made me uh, weep with laughter until coffee came through my nose Uh, An audience member was from Denver, and he said, oh, yeah, Denver, yeah, that's 5,380 feet above sea level, isn't it? And the woman said, how do you know that? And he said, well, well, ma'am, it's called the Mile High City. Okay, let's start easy. If it were called the Yard High City, (laughs) that would be what? Three feet. Very good. And I just – he does that stuff Mm. effortlessly. And he was good friends with Jay Leno. Still is. Still is. Um, now, I was the host and MC at Chrissy Francis's Hollywood Comedy Room, no longer extant, on uh, Santa Monica Boulevard in Los Angeles. And Jimmy was there. And I considered myself not just host to the audience, but host to the comics as well. I wanted it to feel as though I was welcoming people in. I was creating an environment for them to work. Jimmy came off stage, I went up, I introduced the next guy, I came off stage. And this was long before Jay had started doing The Tonight Show, He had, and he had been a guest on that in Letterman, but he hadn't. Right. I, I came off stage, and there was a guy there who was trying to sell jokes all the time, but he wasn't funny. So Jimmy comes off stage, and this guy, I think his name was Marty, was going, Hey, Jimmy! I should I should back up a little bit to say that when Jimmy was doing The Tonight Show as a guest at that time, every six months, which meant that he needed to write an act every six months. Other than that, he just improvised. But you can't go on television and say, where are you from? What do you do for a living? So he had a joke in his act, a, a, an utterly innocuous joke. It was, uh, I, I get my hair cut at Supercuts because it's $8. Well, eight and a quarter with tip. That was the joke. Right. And he comes off stage, and this guy's going, uh, Jimmy, I got some supercuts jokes for you. You want super? Cu- I got one. Uh, one week, I was, one. One week, I was uh, short on cash. Instead of supercuts, I went to pretty good cuts. <laughs> you think you could use that, Jimmy? Pretty good cuts. See, because I couldn't afford. I couldn't afford super. Cu- I went to pretty good cuts. What do you think, Jimmy? Could you? <laughs> and I hear this going on. I'm like, oh, I don't want this happening in the room where I'm the host. So, I say to Jimmy. You need supercuts jokes, Jimmy. I got. Some, I put my arm around him. I walk him away from Marty, mm-hmm. and I thank him for doing the show. And I tell him, I love having him. And he says, "Oh, thank you so much. It's very kind." Of you. What you. What do you got on supercuts? And he said, "Oh, I was just just rescuing you from from schlubbo the the mm-hmm. joke salesman." And he said, "Oh, that's very sweet of you. What what do you got on supercuts?" <laughs> and I said, oh, "I got one supercuts joke that I've never done. If you want it, I guess." Mm-hmm. He said, "What well, what is it?" And I said, "Oh, it's um." I, I I I go to Supercuts, uh, but but for like two weeks afterwards, every time all my friends are coming up to me going, "Hey, did you just take a nap?" <laughs> and he said, "Oh, that's funny. Let me try it out. If mm-hmm. it works, I'll give you fifty bucks for it. Mm-mm. If it doesn't, you know." I said, yeah. "Okay." A week later, he comes back. No, no, he said, "I'll give you twenty-five for it." A week I was later, say nineteen eighties money. A week later, he comes back and gives me a check for fifty. Ooh. And I said, "This is great, Jimmy, but you, you promised me 25 five <laughs> And he said, "That was in case it didn't work," mm-hmm. which is generous and sweet. It was, you know, he was giving himself leeway to pay me less than he felt. He said, "Never take less than seventy-five dollars for a joke again." <laughs> and I said, "Okay." So that opened up the world of writing jokes for people. Mm-hmm. When he when when Jay began doing Monday nights uh, as guest host mm-hmm. for Johnny. I, needed money. I was broke. I was always broke. And I knew Jimmy was the executive producer now. He was, not for the full show, but he was, I guess, head writer for, for Jay until Jay took over. Then he became executive producer. And I called him and I said, hey, I know you guys do a weekly writing roundtable. Could I be part of that? And he said, you know what? I don't really want to be inviting a lot more people to that. But if you want to freelance, contact his manager's office. They will set you up with a, I'll tell them to set you up with a uh, waiver and you can you can fax in jokes mm-hmm. so every week i'd write 50 jokes and i'd fax them in and then they wouldn't tell you what they were buying you would have to watch the show and if you saw one of your jokes hope that they sent you a check <laughs> and uh and they started buying jokes from me um and i loved doing it it was a uh
0: that paid more than 75 a joke i hope
1: I think they were paying me 100 or or 150 a joke. I'm not They're sure. on TV. But it was not big, stupid Hollywood television money. Mm. It was writing for The Tonight Show right. credit, which yeah. changed my status in my own mind some and, in, and was a great intro credit. Um, the first joke they bought from me was one of the most innocuous I had ever sent in and a disappointment. And then uh, several months later, and this will date me, uh, there was a point at which Ross Perot, uh, a wealthy Texan, was running for president. And 1992. Then he dropped out of the race. And then two months later, he got back <laughs> into the race. Because... <laughs> July and August. Because wealthy... What a cra- Wealthy crazy people <laughs> should not run for office. Um,
0: <laughs> Again.
1: Ever. <laughs> so... Uh, after he had dropped out of the race, I got an email, no I didn't, I got a I got a <laughs> voice message from the the woman who managed Jay at the time mm-hmm. saying, "We're we're looking for balanced monologues. So if you're going to bash the right, make sure you bash the left equally." And I called in and said, "I can't do that. I I know I write really strong jokes, and if my jokes are being used to support an idea that I disagree with, mm. that's going to make me really hate myself. How about this? I'll write my jokes and you buy some of my jokes and you buy some of Jeff Wayne's jokes and you got a a balanced monologue. And she said, if you can't do what I tell you, you're done. We're finished buying from me. I said, all right. So I stopped Uh, writing for it. And then Ross Perot got back into the race. And I got a message from someone else at that office saying, hey, can we buy all the jokes you ever sent us about Ross Perot? And I said, "Sure, and I got a fourteen hundred dollar check. Oh. I said, there's one that I'm using in my act that you can't have, the mm-hmm. rest of them you can have. Um, I got a fourteen hundred dollars check for all my Ross Perot jokes.
0: And was that it for you and Leno? And then I was done with the
1: yeah I okay. was done with the show. Um, every time I've seen him since, every time I've run into him, uh he, he greets me with the, the half nod that says, I think I know you, but I don't know your <laughs> name. And I say, Dylan Brody, I, I wrote for you when you were – oh, yeah, 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 very funny, very, very funny guy. Um, but uh, yeah, we're not, we're not friends or anything. Right. A few years ago, I ran into Jimmy Brogan uh, for the first time in 28 years. And, uh, and I said, Jimmy, I'm thinking of telling the story of the joke that I wrote for you. The the first joke I ever sold. Mm -hmm. And he said, what was the joke? And I told him, oh, that's a funny joke. I might start doing that again. (laughs) And I said, oh, well, then I won't. He said, no, 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 go ahead. So the next night I brought him 50 bucks Mm -hmm. and said, uh, he said, what what are you giving me 50 bucks for? I said, well, because this is what you gave me for the joke. And if I'm going to be doing it in the story, I should give you the 50 bucks back. He said, no, 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 keep your money. I'm going to start doing the joke again. (laughs) And I said, you don't want me doing it? He said, no, do it. (laughs) Look, if people see you do a joke... Uh, in a story, uh-huh. and then a year later they see me doing that joke, they go, oh, that's the guy he was talking about, and it's a really good callback. Ah. If people see me do the joke, and then a year later they see you do the story, they go, oh, that's a callback. That's just right in with everything he does. It works either way. It's good.
0: <laughs> just the sweetest man in the world. Fairness. Do you think work, working for Leno, even though you had stopped, uh, ultimately was the reason you didn't get that job at Letterman that you wanted?
1: No. No, I don't think that didn't occur to me until you just said it. Really? Yeah. Uh, now I
0: do. No. <laughs> even though that was the height of the no, uh, I don't Letterman feud.
1: Didn't it? Didn't occur to me? And no, I don't think. I don't think in the writers' departments the feud was the same thing. Okay. Uh, as it as it might have been uh, between the two, and even between the two, I think it was professional jealousies, not. I think they were both grown, grown up enough to know that while there was disappointment and there was anger, uh, that they were both doing okay. And there may have been too much resentment for them to be comfortable, you know, hanging out mm-hmm. anymore. But I don't I don't think it was... Uh,
0: it didn't rise to the level of, oh, if you're playing that club, you'll never play this club?
1: I don't think so. Okay. I could be wrong. Uh, and there may have been some of that in terms of what comics they would allow on the show, and and to perform or to panel. Yeah, but I don't I don't think that was an issue. But boy, it's it's good to have in my <laughs> in my psyche to work out. I'm glad
0: I'm glad I could. That's a really interesting your, thought. I if there was an right.
1: actual reason that they didn't hire me, right.
0: Because I've heard you tell the story that you had really good references. I, uh, or you had at least George, one... George Carlin... Well, yeah, that, you had that, George Carlin vouch for you. That was me being an idiot.
1: That mm-hmm. George ref, George gave me a reference as a comic mm-hmm. at a time when I was trying to get work as a writer. And because I was trying to get work as a writer on Letterman, it didn't occur to me to follow up with the... Damn talent department about getting on as a comic ah. because I am an idiot. This was have I mentioned that my early career was a lot of doors opening you,
0: and me slamming yes, them shut. Yes, you did mention that. I,
1: it, this was one of them. That,
0: that was one of your classic nested flashbacks.
1: Ah, uh, excellent. That was just a callback. That's just a, a
0: callback. But yeah, callback to a flashback.
1: Callback to a flashback. That's right. And and that is just signature Brody right
0: there. But you you have a, a I mean your George Carlin story is like a lot of. Carlin stories I've heard over the years where he would he would genu- be genuine and sincerely reach out to people who reached out to him. Uh,
1: exactly. It was a generous moment. I had sent him a tape and he called me and said, hey, I got your tape about oh, six yeah. months ago. I didn't think I should let that go without giving you a ring and telling you you're very funny politically. I was like, what? Yeah. You're co- George! And I was too stoned to know what to make of that. And I said, would you mind telling the assholes at Letterman that? And he said, Uh Sure and then he hung up on me and then he called me back and said I told him you're a very funny political comic is that okay and I said yeah and then I never thanked him like I was I was such an idiot I was so young and such an idiot and so stoned Uh, and it was a great kindness and and one that I shall never forget
0: was it the quitting pot or was it uh, that bitterness or self-sabotage that made you stop for 10 years all of it It was the quitting pot. Well, when I... Because I know you took a 10-year break. I was
1: already taking the break when I quit pot. Mm -hmm. I I suffer from fairly severe depression and did not know that I was self-medicating against depression with the pot. Now, in the course of a single year, two, three things happened. I met the woman I would ultimately marry. Four things happened. I met the woman I would ultimately marry shortly after having been dumped by who was at that time the woman of my dreams. Johnny Carson retired and for a long time being on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson had been my goal and my dream and now Jay Leno was taking over for whom I had written So that seemed like less of an accomplishment. Right. So like there was a – one of my huge motivators was gone. Right. The bucket list. And uh, at the same time, hundreds of comedy clubs, one-nighters and stuff all over the country shut down. So I had gotten my first TV exposure on uh, A&E and Fox. And that was supposed to allow me to be a headliner everywhere and not just in the few places that were headlining me. And then I was right back to featuring. And when I was headlining, I was making the money I used to make featuring. And it was depressing. So I spiraled into a depression, felt as though there was no point in any of what I was doing. It wasn't getting me anywhere. I wasn't advancing. Even when I had what would be considered career move advancements, they somehow wound up not feeling like what I thought they were going to feel like. And partly because I was still smoking pot and partly because of the depression, that made them valueless to me. So all of that resulted in me going, no, I I guess I'm a writer. I guess my success will come as a writer. And I pulled out of stand-up and wrote, and then I started studying martial arts. Hmm. And it was the martial arts that ultimately allowed me to quit smoking cigarettes and then quit smoking pot. And particularly once that had happened, I no longer knew who I was as a performer. I had been a chain smoking, pot smoking, on stage pacing, hostile, left leaning, raging comic. Uh, I thought I looked like a caged tiger. But part of the humor came from the fact that I so clearly thought that and was, in fact, a, an impotent hamster on a wheel. Mm. Um, and once I was no longer that guy, I didn't know who I was. And I couldn't go on stage and pretend to be something I wasn't anymore. Uh, weirdly, I'm realizing as I say this, this is also the storyline of a screenplay that I've got now. Um <laughs> uh based on my on my book the modern depression guidebook uh, yeah. uh, about a, a self help guru who realizes he's his life is falling apart
0: in your real life is this uh when you chose to do the, go back to the northfield and do the artist in residence it was in um or was that i was on my way
1: to my first black belt when northfield invited me mm mm-hmm and i went and used that time to quit smoking pot i was outside of my usual environment i didn't know where to get pot on the east coast i was just in western massachusetts surrounded by greenery and used that time to go through what is really an emotional withdrawal it's not a physical withdrawal you know there's no shaking there's mm. no uh you don't get the flu symptoms that you get from heroin when you're you're spiraling into but it was a an emotional withdrawal that I was able to work through by being in Western Massachusetts, and uh, and then I I was able to be sober by the time I had my black belt test, my first black belt test. But yeah, it was a really a ten year process from about ninety four to two thousand and four. Before I started to figure out who I was again, and started telling stories. In
0: that middle part, when you were at uh, back at the prep school, did you feel like with being a martial art, be having a black belt, and I didn't have it yet. But showing showing the kids the Bill Hicks, did you feel like you were living out Dead Poets Society, and you you were going to be the Oh Captain, my Captain, to these kids?
1: I yes, but I didn't put it in those terms.
0: Because you want to be your own guy. I, I, you didn't want to be doing Robin Williams.
1: I wanted to be... the. I, I was going to be the cool guy who showed up on campus and introduced the kids to the art as opposed to the craft mm-hmm. of stand-up and writing. And I felt that way. And to some of those kids, I think I was. And there were others whom I failed terribly. Uh, but also during that time, there were things that I was doing that were both for myself and pure pretense. I, for instance, I think I was, I think I was about, I was about four, five months from my black belt test if I hadn't taken those 10 weeks off to go to the West, the the East coast. So it was delaying my black belt test. So I was every day, I was doing my, all of my forms out on a lawn where I could be seen doing my forms. And, uh, and then I would also do some other set of techniques mm-hmm. each day. So I was keeping all of my stuff ready to go for the test. So one day I would do all of my forms and all of my hand techniques. And one day I would do all of my forms and all of my kicking techniques. And one day I would do all of my forms and nunchuck technique. All the stuff that I needed for the test. <laughs> and
0: these teenagers
1: are and watching you. <laughs> there would be teenagers walking past and seeing me. <laughs> and I felt as though not only was I the cool teacher who talks about drugs in a very cavalier fashion and introduces them to hip left-leaning stand-up comedy. But also I was offering a demonstration. I was modeling discipline toward a skill. And I I felt very important.
0: Hmm. When you discovered who you were and decided to jump back into comedy as a humorist, what was that turning point for you?
1: Uh, there's a uh, a former manager of mine, uh, Peter Hankwitz, who I'm going to be seeing this week. He's now on the East Coast, no longer managing. Um, I had started doing radio. There's was a, a station in San Francisco called KYCY uh, that called itself the first podca- all-podcast radio station, when in fact it was the opposite of an all-podcast radio station. But it was at the very beginning of podcasting. Right. They had said on, uh, in an interview on NPR, the guy who ran it said, well, we just want people to send us their stuff via the interwebs and the stuff we like we'll put on the air. Oh. And we're the first all-podcasting radio station. And I had recorded a story that I wanted uh, This American Life to run and they didn't. So I had this great recording of a story. Mm-hmm. So I sent it. And I got a call from them saying, can you do more of these? And I said, yes. And they said, how many can you do? And I said, how many do you want? And they said, well, we hate to overburden you. Can you do one a week? And I said, yes. How much does it pay? And they said, not anything. And I said, (laughs) OK. Because at that point, Mm -hmm. I was trying to figure out what I was doing and how I was going to make a living. How were
0: you making a living?
1: I don't know. I I wrote trailers for movies for a while. I was cobbling together. In a world. Exactly. I was cobbling together a living Mm -hmm. as a writer. And I thought, you know what? It cost me nothing to record these on my computer. And so I learned... In the process, I learned how to make decent recordings of myself. The first ones were awful. I hadn't learned that you don't save everything as an MP3 and then edit as an MP3 and keep saving as an MP3. So the first ones, just by the time I was sending them to them, it sounded like I was recording underwater through a tin can. Mm. It took me a while to learn the technique, but I was having stuff on the air every week in San Francisco. And then people started contacting me for CDs. So I was burning my own CDs and sending them out. And then two things happened. One was that I started going out and and performing at workout clubs and just adding curse words to keep the focus of the audience Mm -hmm. in my stories. And a manager, this manager, Peter Hankwitz, contacted me and said, listen, I just made a bunch of money on another client. I've been listening to your CDs for two years. I'm interested in managing you. And I said, well, here's what I've been doing. I've been going out to clubs and cursing. And he said, stop doing that. What you're doing is not nightclub material, you're a humorist and storyteller, we have to brand you. And that changed the way I thought about what I was doing. And I sent my CDs to David Sedaris, and he responded to them, Mm. telling me that he, he enjoyed them and I particularly liked this story and this line. And then he and I became pen pals, essentially. Now, a a few years ago, he started having me open for him when he's on the West Coast. I did for three years running. And that also changed my career a lot. But his approval of what I was doing and this manager who managed me very well for three years and very badly for six months uh, changed changed my sense of who I was and and what
0: could be done with my work. Because it was validation or because it was validation from – these specific people? Uh, Both. And with the
1: manager, because it was, well, with both, because it was validation and because it was guidance. It was somebody not just saying what you're doing is good as it is, what you're doing is worthwhile as it is, but also people who are smarter than I am, people who know how that world works, saying... Now take it in this direction and this is how you should pursue it. Uh, I sent Sidaris, I I sent David a a letter at one point saying I'm getting ready to record my next CDs should I do it myself the way I've been doing it or do you think I should find a label? And he got back to me with advice. Uh, My manager when I then found a label that was willing to, to license those next CDs had smart advice on how to deal with that contract. Mm-hmm. I needed people who could inform my career beyond the work that I was doing creating a new style of, of humor. And the truth is in 1958 I would just be a comic. There were comics who were doing this kind of thing years and years ago. But there aren't anymore because television has taught us to expect the 4 to 1 lap per ratio. So what I'm doing now has to be branded specifically because I don't want people to come see me and be disappointed.
0: Right. That would just suck for everybody. It's funny, though, because now, now that you mention it and I'm thinking about it, I've, I'm, I'm reviewing all these new Netflix specials and more than a couple of them, at some point, the comedian will stop what they're doing or supposedly stop what they're doing and say a line like, oh, I, I know this is starting to seem like a TED Talk. <laughs> Which is like, well, <laughs> then do a TED talk. <laughs> then do a TED talk. Or like, how, how, how? I don't feel like you're that different. If they feel like they're getting into TED talk territory,
1: well, I first of all, I like to believe that I am at the vanguard of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think there are comics who are seeing what I'm doing and trying to figure out how to work that into their act. I think there are storytellers who are seeing what I'm doing and trying to figure out how to be funnier and and so on. When I put together the the show that I'm doing in New York right now, uh, Dylan Brody's Driving Hollywood, there was a director who wanted to work with me on something who is not involved in this project. She said, will you write a show that I could direct? And I said, yes, but I don't want it to turn into a TED Talk. And she said, what does that mean? I said, well, I am all about the words. I am all about the stories and the images and the sentence structure and the beauty of language. I don't want it to turn into a, a... PowerPoint presentation and she said okay and I wrote the piece and mm-hmm. I did a, a first presentation of it just behind a mic in front of an audience at a coffee house not you know staged and afterwards she said well wouldn't it be cool if when you talk about your dad we had a picture of your dad that shows up on a screen I said no I said but and that's, we could be multimedia and I said no and she, well, what if we just took some words out of what you say and they drift by on the uh, no. Well, why not? Because that's distracting. I want people with me in the moment. Mm. And said, well, you know, a lot of people are doing multimedia and I said I don't want to do what a lot of people are doing. I want to do what I do and I want to make sure that that is interesting. When the producers I I then shot this as a special for uh, nextupcomedy.com. That's not true. I shot it as a special and then licensed it to nextupcomedy.com. And I shot it in a theater standing behind a microphone. And a producer saw, saw it and said, hey, are you interested in doing this as a staged production for a tour? And I said, yes. And she said, are you interested in working with the director? Do you mind? And I said, I would love to. Let me script it first. And I took the time, I hired someone to do a transcript of the special. And then I refined it. And I wrote into a script as if it were a play how I wanted it staged so that when the director came in, they would see what I'm trying to do and would not try to overlay their vision of what a solo show should look like onto it. Mm -hmm. And as a result, Nancy Carlin came in, Blue Panther is the production company, Nancy Carlin came in and directed it based on what I'd written. And our designer came in and created a set based on what I'd written. And I get this beautiful minimalist set that Maggie Whitaker put together for me. And the the director understands stage movement and understands theatricality. And what I get to do with this show is exactly what I wanted it to be, only with the added dimension of the director's vision of how I can as an actor be working it beat by beat and the the, the designer's vision of how a minimalist set can be beautiful and I, and I could not be happier with what it turned into but I didn't want it to turn into a TED Talk. I didn't want to show graphs. I didn't want to show pictures. I didn't want it to be multimedia. I wanted it to be storytelling
0: raised to the level of theatricality sounds like after all of these years, you finally figured out who you are and what you want to be.
1: Yeah. Now, if I could just figure out how to make a living, I'd be all set.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, hopefully by the next time I talk to you, we'll figure that out, too. Oh, I get to
1: talk to you again? (laughs)
0: Let's hope so. Oh, good. Thanks, Dylan. No, thank you, sir. (laughs) This episode of The Comics Comic Presents Last Things First was produced by Alex Brzezell at Showbird Studios. The music by Camille Harris and Shockwave. Logo by Giggle Chick. Please check out my website, thecomicscomic.com for more interviews, reviews, and comedy news. Become a paid subscriber at patreon.com. I'm your host, Sean O. McCarthy. Thanks for listening. things first.